0: No one was more forsaken of God in that moment than Jesus Christ himself. The father turned his back on his own son because he was bearing the sin of the world for our sake. This is season 11 of Guerrilla Christianity. My name is Pastor Brett Walker and I'd like to thank you for listening to Guerrilla Christianity an unconventional, no-apologies exposition of God's grace from an Orthodox Wesleyan point of view. God's Holy Word is essential to our teaching, so let's get into God's Word right now. I would also invite you to keep your Bibles out and turn in them back to the, uh, the Psalms again. Psalm 22 is where we are today, and it's on page 500 of the Old Testament if you're following along in the Pew Bible. Well, in this season of Lent, we are looking at the Psalms, and today we are looking at Psalm 22. It's a startlingly accurate description of the crucifixion of Christ. Indeed, it's nearly impossible for a Christian on this side of the resurrection to read this Psalm of David and not come away with the picture of Calvary in our minds. But this Psalm does not simply end with hopelessness and abandonment and the gospel doesn't end with the death of Jesus. Indeed, we see in this psalm an eternal deliverance from all earthly affliction, one that deserves all our praise and the worship of generations to come. We already read this psalm responsively. We're going to go through it verse by verse, but for now, let's prepare our hearts and minds to receive this word. Let us pray. Father, be with us now as we open your holy word and speak to us in the stillness of our hearts. Whatever troubles us outside these walls, Lord, we ask that you would quiet those thoughts that we may focus upon you and your great love for us. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Last week we talked about having difficult days and having a prayer that we can pray uh, when we feel those difficult days when we are having that just an awful day well has there ever been a time in your life when you've felt completely abandoned by god a time when you felt so in the depths of your despair you felt like there is no way out of this darkness there is no way out there is no help coming i keep praying to god he's not answering me i keep i keep going to god he's not he's not helping me just the awful pits of despair that we feel at times in our lives i think about the frustration that i felt over selling our house in Pittman. it was a very dark time for me and it was during a time when i was serving this church and I was very glad to serve this church. I was very glad to be serving God because I knew the eternal consequence of of what he rescued me from. And so I never held it against God, but I always thought to myself, why is this so hard? Why is what I'm going through so difficult? And there were times when I thought to myself, I mean, couldn't God just hit that house and with a bolt of lightning and burn it to the ground i'd be done with it you know it was it was so frustrating and it 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 was so emotionally and mentally taxing you know being the uh being the father being the husband being the provider it's not easy and it's even harder when you've got this albatross hanging around your neck which is this this house that just wouldn't sell it wouldn't sell it wouldn't sell and when we finally sold it, we sold it for a lot less than we owed. And the bank was gracious to accept the offer. We were very glad to be be rid of it. Uh, I'll be honest with you, I was, I was not happy with the realtor. I was not happy with, well, I wasn't happy with myself either, because I had words with the realtor that were very unchristian, let me tell you. Um, but... Uh, It was a difficult time, and I thought there would be no end. It came to an end. It came to an end. And at the end of it, God be praised. God be praised for (laughs) getting me through that difficult time, showing me that there is light at the end of the tunnel, that even in the tip, the pits of my despair, there was still deliverance, salvation. He might not have answered my prayers in the timing that I would have liked, but he did answer my prayers. And I learned a lot from that experience, and I grew a lot from that experience. And so I feel like he was preparing me for something else. Ultimately, the things that God brings us through do not destroy us because he has us in his hand. And even if we might, we might lose our lives in the process, but he still has us because he offers to us eternal life. This life is not the end of our existence. This life is just the beginning of eternity with God. And so this psalm really demonstrates that hopelessness, that, that feeling of abandonment. And let me tell you, <clears throat> All of us can point to times when we feel like our prayers are unanswered. In today's psalm, we see that kind of desperation, that feeling of betrayal. And I think it's helpful for us to see that we're not alone in feeling that way. Sometimes when we're going through those dark times, we don't want to share them with everybody else because we want them to think, hey, everything's fine, everything's good. Why wouldn't it be? I have God in my life. I have Jesus Christ in my life. And so life is, you know, peaches and cream. It's just, it's the best. It's really not. Life is still life, you know, and we still have difficulty. And our reluctance to share that difficulty with others sometimes leads to us feeling very alone. And when we do finally share those things, we we find that we're not alone. There are people who have been where we've been. There are people who are stuck in that situation too. And God's with us the whole way. And that's what this psalm is all about. The lectionary only has verses 23 through 31. And if you read it from verse 23, you think that this is a song of praise. If you only read verses 23 through 31, you think this is a great psalm of praise and adoration for God in a time of jubilation. And you don't see the pain, the depths of despair that the psalmist has been through in the first 21 verses. Which is why I chose this week instead of just doing verses 23 through 31. We're looking at the entire psalm as a song. Well, it's, it's more than a song. It's a cry. It's a cry for help. And that's what this psalm is. And more than that, it points to the eternal salvation. This very psalm points to our eternal salvation. And that really makes it a wonderful psalm indeed. Now, I said last week that we... We need to read the superscription, why? Because the superscription is part of the psalm, okay? It's included, it's instructions that are given uh, when necessary. And it also tells us a little bit about the psalm and it is inspired, it's in the original Hebrew, okay? Even though it might not be part of the psalm itself, it's still, it's still inspired. Okay, if in your Bible you see above or below where it says Psalm 22, it says plea for deliverance from suffering and hostility. Right. That's not inspired. That's just a title that the uh, translators have given to this song. But the words directly below that and directly above verse one, where it says to the leader, according to the deer of the dawn, a psalm of David, that is inspired, that is in the original Hebrew, okay? So these are instructions to the leader. It, it, it's to giving instructions to the, to the worship leader, how this should be sung, according to the deer of the dawn. Um, the KJV renders it, upon Ijileth Shalhar. <laughs> you know? according to the doe of the dawn, according to the deer of the dawn, might have been a a tune that they used, you know? Certain of our hymns use the same tunes. At the bottom of each hymn, you'll see a word in in, uh, capital letters. We sang, my hope is built. At the bottom it says, the solid rock in capital letters. That's the tune name. And if you have other tunes that are similar, or, or uh, poems that are similar in meter, you can sing those to the same tune. And that's what this psalmist is saying here. Sing it according to this tune. And then it says, a psalm of David. This is another of David's psalms. He wrote this. And he wrote this in, under intense persecution and feeling of hopelessness, a feeling of abandonment, and yet we're gonna see midway through his deliverance of God and its aftermath. Okay, <clears throat> verses one and two. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, by find no rest. Now, if those words sound familiar, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's because it was quoted by Jesus on the cross. And it was, it was uh, recorded for us that he quoted this verse in both Mark and Matthew's gospel accounts. Now, why would Jesus say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you don't know the Old Testament, if you don't know the Psalms, you might think, Well, Jesus at that moment was forsaken of God, and indeed he was. No one was more forsaken of God in that moment than Jesus Christ himself. Forsaken the second person of the Trinity, the Father turned his back on his own Son for our sake, because he was bearing the sin of the world for our sake. So Jesus quotes this hymn, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It helps the people who are standing there, those who are familiar with the Psalms, to understand that he's pointing to this Psalm. I heard a story about a young man in a Bible Bible school, uh, Sunday school class. And the Sunday school teacher said to, to the children, Who made all things? And they said, God and he said, who made you? And they said, God. And the Sunday school teacher said, what's God's name? And one little boy says, Andy. What? Why do you think his name is Andy? He says, because of the song. Andy walks with me. Andy talks with me. <laughs> now, see, I say that, and you know what song I'm talking about, right? Right? And immediately, you probably hear the tune in your head. And he walks with me, and he talks with me, and he tells me I am his own. You don't even have to hear the rest of the song. You know what song I'm talking about, right? That's what Jesus is doing here. He's bringing to mind this psalm. He's pointing to Psalm 22. And I think a lot of the reason that he's pointing to this psalm is because he's showing, number one, there is... (coughs) There is a feeling of forsakenness in this psalm. And there's a lot of prophecy in this psalm. As we read it, we'll see that. But there is also, at the end of this psalm, eternal deliverance. And that's what Jesus is telling us as he hangs on the cross. This is, there will be victory here. This isn't a defeat. There will be victory Mark chapter 15 and verses 34 through 36. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which is the Aramaic version of this hymn. And it means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling for Elijah. They missed the point. They missed the point. Behold, he's calling for Elijah, and someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to take him down. They're waiting for a miracle. They're waiting for a miracle to happen. But Jesus is saying, No. I'm forsaken in this moment, but it will be for ultimate victory. Verses 3 through 5. Yet you are holy. Notice he changes it. He says, I feel forsaken. I feel abandoned. Yet you are holy. Enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our ancestors trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and they were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. Despite his feelings of abandonment, the psalmist reminds himself and us of the historical aid that God has given in times of trouble to the nation of Israel. When God met Moses in the burning bush, he said, I have heard the cry of my people. He hears us. He knows when we're in despair, when we're reaching out to him saying, I I have nothing left, God. You're my only hope. And so verse 6 But I am a worm and not human, scorned by others and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They shake their heads, commit your cause to the Lord. Let him deliver, let him rescue the one in whom he delights. Now, if that sounds familiar, it's because it's also a scene from the cross. Now in verse 6 and 8, the psalmist humbles himself. He's not worthy to receive God's answer based on the reaction of those around him. I'm a worm, not a human. I'm despised by the people. But Jesus was also scorned and despised for our sake. Isaiah 53.3 tells us, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Verses 7 and 8. Really, really remarkable. All who see me mock at me. They make mouths at me. They shake their heads. Commit your cause to the Lord. Let him deliver. Let him rescue the one in whom he delights. It's, it's, they're saying that sarcastically. Oh, if God loves you so much, let him save you. Why don't you call out to the Lord? Which is exactly what he's doing. Matthew chapter 27. Verses 39 through 44. Listen to these words. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. They shake their heads. They make mouths at me. And saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying... He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. Listen to these words. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. Well, that's scary. They missed the point of his saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then they they quoted the verse that points to them. Commit your cause to the Lord. Let him deliver. Let him rescue the one in whom he delights. They said, he trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. And So Jesus was despised. He was was cast off by the people. And at this moment, God had also turned his back on him as well. Verse 9. Yet it was you... Who took me from the womb you kept me safe on my mother's breast on you i was cast for my birth and since my mother bore me have been my god you have been my god now before he's reminding himself and us of the historical deliverance of god for the people of israel now he's reminding himself that god has been with him his entire life He's reminding himself of his own historical relationship with God. That God has been with him all along the way. This is David we're talking about. King David. Okay? A a, a boy who was, you know, his grandmother, great-grandmother, was a Moabite. Okay? Who was a widow and married a man named Boaz. And Boaz and Ruth had a son named Obed. And Obed had a son named Jesse. And Jesse had a son, the youngest of eight sons, named David, who was taken out of the sheepfold and anointed to become the second king of Israel after Saul. So David knows something about being delivered by God, how God has been with him all his life. And so he's reminding himself of that. And then he says, verse 11. <clears throat> Do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there is no one to help. So based on his historical relationship with God, he continues to cry out for him. He says, you are my only hope. There is no one to help. Only you can deliver me, Lord. Verse 12, many bulls encircle me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. So he's using poetic language to describe his current situation, his outward situation. That's what's going on all around him. Now we look at what's what's happening inside of him. Verse 14, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Again, he's using poetic language. Now this. He's using it to describe his current inward situation, how he feels on the inside. He talks about what's going on all around him. He talks about what's going on inside of him. Verse 16, For dogs are all around me, a company of evildoers encircles me. My hands and feet have shriveled, I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothing among themselves, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now, this verse here, verse 16, For dogs are all around me, a company of evildoers encircles me, my hands and feet have shriveled. I think that the NRSV gets this wrong, and I think the other translations get it right. And In fact, in our hymnal uh, on verse 16, it says, Indeed, dogs surround me, a company of evildoers encircles me, they have pierced my hands, and feet. Why is there confusion over this verse? Why are there two different versions of this verse? Well, the Hebrew actually says, like a lion, my hands and my feet. That doesn't really make a lot of sense. Like a lion, my hands and my feet. That's what the Hebrew says. But the Septuagint says, My hands and my feet are pierced. Now, the Septuagint precedes uh, the birth of Christ by about 250 years. Okay, it's a Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures that was commissioned in Alexandria. All right. So we know that it said that his hands and feet were pierced prior to the birth of Christ. If you look at textual criticism on this verse, most of it says, I'm not trying to bore you, but the, the Hebrew, or belabor the point, but I just want to point out why this says what it says. The Hebrew may have been changed by a copyist error. Okay? The Septuagint shows that the original verse said, pierced. My hands and my feet Are pierced. Okay? They have pierced my hands and my feet. Why is that important? Well, at the time of the writing of this psalm, early 10th century BC, crucifixion is completely unknown. It's not a thing. The earliest recorded crucifixion was in 522. Polycrates. The tyrant of Samos was executed by the Persians and then hung on a cross to display. The Romans saw that and they perfected it. They perfected crucifixion as a means of execution in the 2nd and the 1st centuries B.C. Again, the Septuagint was produced in the 3rd century B.C. All of this precedes the life, death, and resurrection of Christ by about a thousand years. That's incredible to know that David was feeling what his own ancestor would feel. Verse 18, they divide my clothes among themselves and for my clothing they cast lots. All four Gospels record the Roman guards casting lots for the clothing of Christ as he hung on the cross. But only John explicitly points to this verse as evidence of the prophecy. In chapter 19 verses 23 and 24, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom, so that they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So again, prophetic vision, prophetic looking forward. David, what David's feeling in this moment, a thousand years before Christ was even born, is pointing to Christ's salvation for us on the cross. Verse 19. But you, O Lord, do not be far away. O my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion, from the horns of the wild oxen. Now I stop there for a reason. There's no punctuation in the Hebrew save me from the mouth of the lion from the horns of the wild oxen the psalmist does not give up his prayer but he takes it up again he reminds himself of god's historic providence he reminds himself of how god has provided for the hebrews how god has provided for him and now he's taking up his his lament again you O lord do not be far away O my help Come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion, from the horns of the wild oxen. Why did I stop there? Because this next phrase is a separate phrase. And it starts telling of David's response to his salvation. In other words, at this moment, David was delivered. And it says, you have rescued me. Actually, the Hebrew word is better rendered answered. You have answered me. You have answered me. He's praying this prayer. Lord, deliver me, deliver me, deliver me. And then he's delivered. And he goes, you've answered me. You've answered me. You have have responded to me. You have rescued me. And now you can see how the tone of the psalm changes. I will tell of your name to my brothers and sisters. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You see? He was in trouble. He was delivered in this one moment. You have rescued me. And now he's singing this praise. I will tell of your name to my brothers and sisters. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. Now he's delivered from trouble. He declares he will not forget God, but praise him and teach others to praise him as well. And again, the the lectionary starts at verse 23. So here we are 23. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he did not despise or abhor the affliction of the afflicted. He did not hide his face from me, but heard when I cried to him. This psalm started with so much despair and agony. And now he's saying, he's answered me. He has not turned his face from me. He heard when I cried to him. And he's calling on people to praise God for this. Notice how the address shifted from the second person. He's talking to God. You have rescued me. I will tell of your name to my brothers and sisters. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. And then, it shifts to the third person. Now he's addressing other people. He's addressing us, saying, you who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. It's amazing. For he did not despise or abhor the affliction of the afflicted, but he He did not hide his face from me, but he heard when I cried to him. Now do you see why I included the whole psalm? Because if this is the only thing that we read, it's like, eh, it's another praise, yay. But you see, he's in the depths of his despair, and then all of a sudden, in an instant, you have rescued me. And everything changes after that. Everything turns from that moment. Verse 25, Verse 25, From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will pay before those who fear him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. So, apparently he had made vows to care for the poor when he was pleading with God. God, if you you rescue me from this affliction, I'll take care of the... Have you ever made those kinds of promises? And then when you're delivered, what do you do? You think, well, oh, no, I guess I'm on the hook. Or you do what he did. He says, Hey, I'm not going to forget my vow, Lord. I'm not going to forget my vow. I promised I was going to take care of the poor, and I'm going to take care of the poor. It's good. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. This praise is not only for the Hebrews. In the great congregation, it will reach the ends of the earth. When Jesus rose from the dead, the fame of his resurrection quickly spread throughout the world because the disciples told the good news to everyone that they could. And they went to the ends of the earth to do it. You know, Philip went down to Ethiopia. The Ethiopian church has been around for 2,000 years. Uh, Thomas went to uh, India. and and established churches there. Uh, And Paul was all throughout Europe and Asia. It's amazing when when you're touched by Jesus and the deliverance that you've received from him, you want to tell people about it, and that's what he's doing. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. To him indeed, verse 29, to him indeed shall all who sleep in the earth bow down. He's talking about people who die. The people who die... Get this, we'll bow down before him shall bow down all who go to down to the dust, and I shall live for him. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord and proclaim his deliverance to a people yet unborn. That's us. That's us. We're the people yet unborn in David's time. And future generations are proclaiming his deliverance to us, saying that he has done it. It's a picture of the world in the church age. As the church grew and the good news of the death and resurrection of Christ spread, souls were being saved and the faithful will worship God eternally in his presence. As Jesus hung on a cross, he uttered these words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that moment, he was more forsaken of God than any other human on the earth before or since. Because the second person of the Trinity took upon himself all the sins of the world and bore the entirety of the wrath of the Father for our sakes. But that was not the end of the story. In three days, he rose again proving that he is who he says he is, the only begotten of the Father, the word of God made flesh. Those who trust in Christ alone for their salvation will have it eternally. We don't trust in our own goodness because at our sinful core, we have none. Instead, we trust in the goodness of God and the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. Christian, know that wherever you are going through, whatever you're going through, whatever adversity faces you in this life, there is a God in heaven who loves you and sent his own son to die for you. And one day you will join the multitudes in heaven to sing God's praises for all eternity. This psalm, written 3,000 years ago, 1,000 years before Christ came to earth, is a testimony of God's provision and grace when we lift up to him our cry for help. Let us pray. Father God, we adore you for what you have given to us in the death and resurrection of your Son. In his death we are justified, in his resurrection we are given eternal life. We thank you for delivering us from our affliction and drawing us near to you. As we continue in this Lenten season, may we constantly reflect on all the wonderful things you have done for us, not just in this life, but even before we were born and in the life to come. You are gracious and all the earth will sing your praises. Let us go from this place to tell others what you have done for us, that you would be glorified in all things. For we ask it in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. I hope that this teaching has blessed you as much as it has blessed me putting this message together. God has also blessed me by calling me to serve two churches in Salem County, New Jersey. Ebenezer United Methodist Church in Auburn and Hudson United Methodist Church in Pedricktown. If you live in the area and don't have a church to call your own, I'd like to invite you to join us on Sunday mornings for a Bible-based and God-honoring worship. Ebenezer meets for worship at 9 a.m. and Hudson meets for worship at 10.30. We also have Sunday school available and Bible study during the week. Now this podcast is self-funded and we never ask for donations. It reaches people all around the world, but it could reach more people if you do a couple of things and it won't cost you a penny. First, subscribe to the podcast and our YouTube channel. Leave a comment and also like the podcast. That puts the podcast in front of more people so that the gospel may reach them as well. Keep learning, keep growing, and I pray you will listen to Guerrilla Christianity again. Until next time, remember this, Christ died for you, now go live for Christ.